Amen. Well, Jesse set this up well. You gotta stop peeking at my notes, man. Uh, so I want to begin with this question, which Jesse already teed up well. I want you to think about how many times in your life, how often have you set your heart on something? You've thought it all through, you've worked it all out, makes complete sense in your head, you've thought of every way um, this, this, this could go, you've got the uh, perfect plan. And if everything goes according to my plan, I'll be happy and everyone else will be happy. Anyone else besides me been there? But then you're not. And they're not. Our text this morning is going to look at the human heart. This is what happens when we trust our heart and follow our our heart. Because Disney's wrong on many things. uh, And that's one of them. This is going to set us up. This will be our last sermon to prepare us uh, for the life of David. And so we're going to do an overview of Saul. Um, And just to kind of bring us in, here's where we are in the history of Israel. It's a unique time in Israel. But as Jesse said, it's not really unique because the heart of man doesn't change. Um, But here's where the circumstances are. This is a period in Israel's history where we're transitioning from the time of the judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, to a time of kings. But in order to get there, the people must ask for a king first. But the problem in them asking for a king is at its core, in their hearts, it is a rejection of God. We don't have to guess at that because the Lord tells us that. So if you're in 1 Samuel, we're going to look at two verses from last week. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people when they ask for a king and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. And they receive the king that they deserve. They want a king like the nations. They want a king who can stand against all the other kings, who can stand tall and can look good doing it, and they get him. They get Saul, a man after their own heart. But the problem is, his heart is not after the Lord's. So I want to jump forward to chapter 13 real quick. This is where we're going this morning. People are rejecting God. They are seeking a king after their own heart. They get the king that they want, the king that they deserve. But that king will be rejected by God. This is 1 Samuel 13 uh, 13 and 14. This is after Saul does one one of his many foolish things. Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. The matter of a king, like everything in scripture... 
is ultimately a matter of a heart. And so if you, like Israel, you look first to the nations, you look first to trusting in man before God, this isn't just a foreign policy strategy. This is a heart trajectory for the nation of Israel. Their heart looks everywhere else but to where it should be looking to the Lord. And so even if all of our ideas make sense in our head, it it feels right. Uh, One of the, um, just so you know, my my favorite commentary so far, uh, David Ralph David's uh, commentary is really good. Dale Ralph David's. Um, But here's what he says about our plans and really the heart of Israel. He says, our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. How many times do our plans and our schemes and the things of our heart, they seem perfectly reasonable. They're clearly logical. And they're obviously plausible. They they can come true. But they are godless because we have not sought the Lord. We've only sought our own comfort and our own joy. So like last week, this week, there is much to be learned about the heart of man in 1 Samuel. So we're going to look at seven chapters this morning, briefly. It will be like a sermon with uh, seven points. Um, So I'm just going to give you a couple things in each chapter to kind of make note of. You can put them in your scripture journals. You can underline them. I encourage you, if you've read ahead, hopefully you've noticed some of these things. And if you haven't, this will give you time to read this week and kind of go back through. Uh, And in each section, we're going to see uh, some, some sketch of Saul's life. And how as a very imperfect king, it points us to our perfect king. But also how we can examine our own hearts through these texts. So let me pray and then we'll jump into chapter 9. O Lord our God, our great and awesome God. If we were to recount your wondrous deeds, we would never stop speaking. If we were to write them down, we would run out of ink. If we were to try to remember them, all the computers in all the world could not hold them. You are vast and immeasurable. You are awesome and wonderful. You are sovereign and transcendent, yet imminent and personal. Lord, would this time in your word be pleasing to you and uplifting to us? Would your word as it does, would it lay us bare and naked before you? Would this be a time of examining the idols in our heart, the kings that we have set up over ourselves, the things that we look to for hope and comfort and security other than you, and would it cause us to look to Christ? Because he is where we find all of those things. And his name is what we gather here to exalt this morning. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 9 is an introductory sketch of Saul. Uh, So I want to jump right in and look at a few details. Right away in chapter 9, there's a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, uh, son of Zeor, 
son of Bacharath, son of uh, Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. So right away for a king, he's got two strikes against him. He's not from the tribe of Judah, and um, he is a wealthy man. Not that there's anything wrong with wealth in and of itself. However, this is going to create uh, some, some comfort and some stumbling blocks for, for Saul. And so um, this man has a son whose name is Saul. He's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his sh- from, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I guess long necks were a thing then. He is tall, dark, handsome, and rich. Isn't this what everyone wants for their king? If you ever want to uh, just be very sad for the, for the state of culture, just look at how many um, people vote based on the appearance of the uh, candidate. It's not any different. So this tall, dark, handsome Benjamite man... Um, his, uh, his, his father herds donkeys. There's all kinds of jokes there, but I'm not going to do it. Um, I wanted to, but my wife told me not to. Um. <laughs> but the donkeys get, get lost. He doesn't know what to do. He hears that there's a prophet. He seeks out Samuel. And so um, starting in verse 9 to verse 14, he goes to visit Samuel. Samuel is the kingmaker. Um, he doesn't really know that. He just needs answers from God. This is the first of many instances in Samuel's life, Samuel, uh, Saul's life, where he does what Spurgeon calls almost right. We can all decide between what is right and wrong, but the harder decision is between what is right and almost right. This sounds good. He is, he is a, a, a man who, okay, I'm going to seek after a prophet. I'm going to seek after a seer. There are many things that are adjacent to what is pleasing to God, but one degree off will lead you astray. Here's what you're going to see. Saul is going to do a lot of religious things, but he does not go to the Lord himself. Samuel cries out to the Lord. Samuel petitions the Lord. Saul is always trying to seek favor by his own effort. But the Lord has been preparing this. The Lord is giving them the king that they asked for. The Lord went ahead and told Samuel that I'm sending you someone. So jump down to uh, chapter 9, verse 16. So he says, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be a prince uh, over my people Israel. This is an interesting word. This word prince here can be translated uh, leader, ruler, um, that idea. But it's interesting that the Lord doesn't use king. He uses prince. Because to all the other nations, their kings were supreme rulers. Their kings were absolute. The Lord is creating a new category here. I am setting you up under, I'm setting you up a king, a leader, a ruler under my kingship. He's my prince. I'm king. And so he's preparing the people for that. And notice how the Lord describes him. He shall save my people. From the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Remember in chapter 8. He told them don't come crying to me because I won't listen. Praise God that he still listens even when we're unfaithful. 
He hears their cry, but he's still going to teach them a lesson. Verse 17, and when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom, dis- of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. It's the job of a king to deliver them from their enemies and to restrain them to do the work of the Lord. Um, so one of the themes that's going to come up a lot here when it says, he shall save my people. This Hebrew word, it means to deliver, to rescue. And so when you hear save, almost like lowercase save. It's a lesser salvation, being saved from enemies, being saved from uh, current circumstances. Um, but they're not talking about eternal salvation here, and that'll come up quite a bit. And so Saul, when Samuel reveals this to him in verse 20, he says, uh, Samuel says, As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is it that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house. So he's telling them that you, God has chosen you. You are most desirable of all the people of Israel. And Saul rightly, humbly says, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is it not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? There are glimmers of hope and maturity in Saul's ministry and Saul's life, um, but it doesn't last long. So, what do we learn from a chapter like this? Man looks outwardly, but when our God sends our king and sends our savior, he wasn't much to look at. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. It'll be up on the screen if you can't get there quickly. But the promise of one who would come was not the tall, dark, handsome, was not the wealthy man, but it's very different. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. For he was despised and we esteemed him not. How like the Lord to prop up Saul. Who everyone wants to look at. Yet send his son who on the cross no one would look at. It wasn't his perfect face or features. It was his perfect humility that made him the worthy king. So for us, lesson number one, shallow people always want shallow and superficial leaders. Carnal people are attracted to carnal things. Like the nations. So beware that you don't fall into that same trap. Beware that you don't read the whole book and assume the series by its cover and never seek deeper. Because when you look to things that are outward, this guy looks like a leader. This guy sounds like a leader. I'm going to follow him. How often has that turned out poorly? So be careful of the outward appearance. We look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Number two, 
guilty of wanting and doing what is almost right. You know what I mean. There are things that look religious and that sound godly, but we know in our heart are just self-serving. There are many people in many churches calling themselves Christians, doing many Christian-y things whose heart is only serving itself. And so we can tell the difference. And this is going to be Saul's problem. God is clear in his word what is acceptable and pleasing to him. God is clear what we should do and should not do. Saul takes that, as we'll see in a few examples, and he takes what he would like to do and just conveniently ignores the rest. So be careful we're not doing the same thing. Chapter 10. Um, Chapter 10, it begins with the anointing of Saul. Where oil is poured on his, on his head. So the idea of anointing, it is, it is a consecration. It is a setting apart for a particular task. Especially when this is done by a prophet, um, it is the mark and sign that the Spirit of God is with this person or with this task. And in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says that he is anointed to reign over the people and to save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. This is his... This is his call. He's the anointed of God, the Christ, lowercase c. Um, And so something interesting happens here after his anointing. Skip down to verse 6. There are prophets who who come, and Samuel tells him what's going to happen next. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Wait a second. That sounds a little weird. Um, It gets a little weirder. Verse 9. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, the spirit of prophets, a group of prophets met him. And the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. Well, wait a second, what's going on here? Because we're New Testament Christians. We, we understand the work of the spirit. Um, if the spirit rushes upon Saul... And he goes about doing some of the things we're going to see in the next couple of chapters. How do we reconcile these, th- these things? Well, let's go back a little bit. From the very beginning, spirit, ruach, it is not just spirit, but it's also breath. It is life. The spirit brings, l- breathes life into all mankind. That's what Paul tells us in Acts 17. The spirit breathed life into creation. It is through the spirit, the very, the, the very power of God himself. That all of creation breathes and lives. But also in the Old Testament, the Spirit empowers people for certain times and certain tasks. He comes upon them and he comes off of them. Um, we can just look at one more example in the same chapter. Look at verse 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So what does that mean? It means that the, um, when you think about the, the, the heart, it is your inner disposition. It is who you are. It is, it is, it is your, your wellspring of strength and creativity and courage and insight. Um, something similar happens back in Numbers. Um, you don't have to turn there if you can't get to Numbers 11 quickly. But when elders are appointed, when the, the elders of the families are appointed to help Moses, 1125, 
Here's what the Lord did. The Lord came down on the cloud and spoke to him. And he took some of the spirit, capital S, that was on them and put uh, on him, Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And soon the spirit rested on them. They prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So there's something distinct in the Old Testament where the spirit comes upon people, whether it's the craftsmen building the temple or coming upon Samson as he tears a lion apart with his bare hands or brings down the, uh, the uh, structure on all of his Philistine captors. But then the spirit leaves when his hair is cut. You know what's so amazing about Pentecost is that when the spirit came, it rested. It, it remained. It stayed with the people of God. Because, spoiler alert, this spirit that rushes on Paul in chapter 10, turn to chapter 16. Or, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 13. There is a spiritual anointing for the task that remains on the king. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So, right now, in chapter 10, the Spirit is on Saul. But the reminder, jumping down to verse 18, here's what Samuel says to the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves. Salvation is only of the Lord. And you were looking for salvation elsewhere. He saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the, the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. God is sovereign even over to the rolling of a dice. He picks Saul by lot, moves from clan down to family, and then the hand goes on him. So God is even sovereign over the choosing of a king. So one more detail about Saul, but do not fear. The Lord chooses kings. He directs directs kings and nations, and whether they are faithful or not, he guides them. Psalm 21.1. Oh, excuse me, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Even in showing Israel a lesson, the Lord is the one directing it. But one more detail about Saul, this tall, dark, handsome, strong guy. Look at verse 22. So... It came down to Saul, the son of Kish. They inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. He's a coward. But still, they ran and took him from there, and and he stood among the people. He was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? Whom the Lord has chosen, there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Outside he is beautiful and tall and strong, and inside he's a coward. Long live the king. 
but there is an anointed one. He is man with God's heart. Our anointed one. Our Messiah does save because he is God. And here's what's unique about the kingship of Christ. Let's turn to John chapter 1. Because while the Spirit came and left Saul as king, John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He is whom the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the sign of God's complete approval. That the Spirit comes, rests, remains, and will not leave. This is the beginning of his ministry. But this is the restoration of what he had with the Father in all of eternity. Perfect union, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a sign that this man will never be rejected. Because his Spirit remains forever. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have been baptized with the same spirit. That same spirit indwells you. That same spirit rests, remains, and will never leave. And that spirit is a sign of God's approval. Because you have been baptized in the Christ. The one who is anointed to come and save the people of God. Saul fell very short, but our king has fulfilled it perfectly. One more text, 1 John 2.20. I'm going to read it real quick. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This is not in a warped, self-serving way that we often see in charismatic churches. This is the consecration of the people of God by the Spirit of God to know Christ, to serve Him, to do extraordinary things in His name for His name and for assurance that you are His forevermore. All right, amen. Chapter 11. So um, chapter 11, we're going to move a little more quickly through this one. But in chapter 11, the people are afraid of the Ammonites. And in verse 6, the Spirit comes upon Paul or Saul for a moment. It rushes on him when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So Saul has this great strength, rips an animal apart, but you see what's really in his heart. He becomes very savage. And the people dread the Lord instead of fearing him. His inner brutality comes out. But after defeating the enemy... He has a bright spot at the end of chapter 11. Then the people said to Samuel, now they're referencing back to verse 26 of the last chapter. Um, or not, uh, not 26, uh, 27. Some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? They despise Saul. And so after Saul wins, the people are like, hey, what about those people who didn't trust in you? They said, bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. 
Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Sometimes he's just so close. He got it. The Lord brought salvation in Israel. Don't kill them. Praise the Lord. But again, that doesn't last long. But for us, we know the Savior. We know that there is not only one Savior just for Israel, but for all mankind. For spiritual Israel. Today, God has worked salvation. Every day is the day of the salvation of the Lord. Every day is the offer of salvation. Every day is an offer of victory over enemy sin and death. Every day is a proclamation that God saves sinners. And he sent his son. And if you would believe in him, you too will have everlasting life. If you will turn from all your false gods and all your false idols. And so we as Christians know that. But how many times are we as Christians so consumed with being saved, air quotes, rescued and delivered from our current situation, the lesser salvation that we miss and forget our greater salvation? How many times are we so consumed with our own fears, wondering if God will deliver us from this situation that we forgot he already has delivered us from sin and death? How irrational is that? That the God who would save us from ourselves, who would save us from hell's torment and his very wrath, the God who left heaven and laid down his life for us, leaving everything behind to save you for all of eternity, wouldn't deliver you from your jerk of a boss or a difficult marriage. Or a hard financial situation. Or how many people try to bargain with God, arguing from the lesser to the greater. God, if you deliver me from this, if you, if you rescue me from this little situation, I'll trust you with all of eternity. How foolish is that? Yet we've all done it. Yet God is still patient with his people. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, uh, verse 6 and 7. Samuel says to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds that the Lord, uh, that he has performed for you and for your fathers. Trusting God is never blind faith. Samuel reminds them, the Lord sent Jacob, he sent Moses, he sent judges. He has always provided for you. He has always sent godly leaders. He has always had a remnant. He has always prepared and provided for his people. But, going down to verse 12, when they get afraid of the Ammonites, they say, the second half of verse 12, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was actually your king. We don't need to look for reasons to trust God. The scriptures are full of them. If you're in Christ, your entire life is full of them. But 
here's how gracious and patient the Lord is. Verse 13. And now behold the king with whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, that the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before you today. Is it not wheat harvest today? You know, we know what harvest is in the fall. Is, is, is the fall usually wet or dry? Pretty dry, right? And so he says, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent great thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. This is the Lord to shake fear into them. I will bless you if you honor me, and I will crush you if you do not. So the people respond as they, as they should in verse 19. And the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all the sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They recognize their, their sin. But notice what the Lord asks of them. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You're right there. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. The Lord is always concerned with the heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, trusting in idols or princes, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because he, it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He does it all for his good pleasure. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Samuel is good in his office of judge and interceding for the people. I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only you, what is your job? Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. The Lord has done many wondrous deeds in the sight of Israel. The Lord has done many wondrous deeds throughout all of history, but the greatest of them is that he sent his son. Our final judge and final king. But because we struggle in trusting, we struggle in remembering the son sent his spirit to give us a new heart so that we can obey him and to give us a new mind that we can remember him. And he promised that he will be with you us until he returns or brings us home we could not obey him on our own we could not please him with all of our heart but because the father was pleased with the son and he's pleased with his offering the son sets his pleasure on us by giving us his spirit and so we can love him we can serve him we can please him because he has given us a new heart and given us his spirit and so this is the wonderful grace of God to them and, and us. Even in their rejection, even in their rebellion, he gives the people what they ask for and promises them good if they just obey him in the system they ask for. 
How many times do we make self-serving choices and the Lord still is patient with us? Man, if we were only as patient with the Lord as he is patient with us. So let me just give you a piece of free pastoral advice. Don't be upset when the Lord doesn't give you exactly what you ask for. Don't be upset. Because how many times out of fear, impatience, doubt, selfishness, have we asked for something that we look back and like, man, I'm glad you did not give me that job, Lord. I'm glad you didn't move me there, Lord. And how many times did the Lord in his patience and graciousness give us something so much better than what we asked for? Amen. Chapter 13. The Israelites are facing a formidable Philistine army. And war is upon them, and Saul gets a little impatient, jumping down to verse 8. Samuel said he'd come within seven days, but Samuel did not come. And the people were scattered all around. So what does Saul say? Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me in peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. That's a big no-no. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed. And the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. Translate, in my own strength, I had the bright idea to offer a burnt sacrifice. And Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he has commanded you, for the Lord Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever if you would only trust him. But now... Because you have trusted yourself, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after God's own heart, David, next week. And the Lord has commanded him to be leader, prince, ruler over his people. Because you have not done what the Lord has commanded you. Saul's foolish offering leads to his rejection and the end of his kingdom. And it sounds good. It's almost right. It's a religious thing. See, Lord, I offered you a sacrifice, but that wasn't your job, was it? It was the job of the judge. Samuel was entrusted with that, not you. So, saints, quickly here. Praise God, we we no longer have to worry about unlawful sacrifices. We no longer have to offer sacrifices and wonder if God will be pleased with us For the next sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 13. This puts this whole sacrifice business to to rest. Hebrews 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. These are... Uh, speaking, still speaking to the uh, temple practices. We are strengthened by the grace of God in our hearts. Not foods, not what enters the body, but what Christ has done inside of us. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, those who are still trying to find God in a building, they have no right to eat at. That altar, the sacrifice of Christ. They're still sacrificing animals. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That final sacrifice was, was kept perfectly in every way. So let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He's calling the Israelites No longer look to the old, empty religious practices. Look to Christ. He's outside of the city. You go to him. For here, on this planet, in this world, on this mountain, we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come, i.e. the heavenly Jerusalem. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is it? What does sacrifice look like for the believer? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Because Christ has drawn near, because we can approach his throne of grace, our sacrifices are pleasing to God. So brothers and sisters, learn from Samuel. Wait on the Lord. Don't be impatient trying to do things in your own strength and take things in your own hands. And stop trying to make sacrifices with your good works. Stop trying to atone for what Christ has already atoned for. Praise his name. Be strengthened by his grace in your heart. Do good and be generous. That is a sacrifice pleasing to God. And that is what he told David after he sinned and repented. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This pleases him. And when you fail, because you will, and you fall short, look to Christ. Because that is the reason why you are pleasing in God's sight. And then you can be reminded of his grace. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Um, This chapter is a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. We're going to spend a lot more time with Jonathan as we go forward. But I want you just to see the difference in characteristic between the father and the son. Chapter 14, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Two men. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And notice the response of his armor bearer. He says to him, do all that is in your heart. His heart is after the Lord. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan's heart follows after the Lord. Jonathan's armor bearer's heart follows after him. But defeats the enemies. Saul wants complete victory for himself. Look what he says down in verse 24. And the men of Israel um, had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. Notice why. What's his motivation here? Until I am avenged and on my enemies. Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord for saving. Saul says, I need to be avenged by, from my enemies. He makes a foolish vow. Anyone who eats, you want to send, you're going to starve your army before you, you send them out? 
But look at Jonathan, verse 27. Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, um, charging the people with an oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. He was now suddenly more alert. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of the honey? And how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they be found. For, their, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great because the people are weak. So what happens? He is selfish. He's telling them, You need to earn your supper. So what happens when they finally win in verse 31? They struck down the Philistines. All the people were faint. And the people pounced because they were starving. They were hangry on the spoil and took the sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them to the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Because he was selfish and impatient, he caused the people to sin. Thirty-six. His bloodthirstiness continues. Let us plunder them into the morning. Let us not leave anyone alive. And he tells the people, do whatever seems right to you. This is a great leader, right? Do whatever is in your heart. Whips them up. But the priest said, "Uh, maybe we should draw near to the Lord. Okay, we'll do it your way, Saul says. They draw near to the Lord. The Lord doesn't answer. The Lord doesn't listen to him. Later on, he finds out that Jonathan broke his vow. And he said, that's it. I said it, kill my son. He's ready to have Jonathan killed. Verse 45, but the people don't respect him. Then the people said to Saul, shall shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not uh, one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The last verse in this chapter says that there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul found any strong men or valiant men, he attached himself to it. What's the lesson here? It is far better to love and be loved than to be feared. Because tyrants always end up lonely. Jonathan loves those around him well. He loved the people well. Saul is... Sadly, merely out for himself. And Saul makes foolish vows. Those who are bloodthirsty and power hungry make vows for themselves. But we have a king who made a vow. His vow is that he would save a people for himself. His vow as he went to the cross for his own death did not demand the death of others, even if they deserved it. Our king vows for life for his people. Our king lays down himself. Chapter 15. And finally. Okay. So here we go again. The Lord gives Samuel, a command. King Amalek, um, he didn't welcome Israel. Verse 3, 
The Lord tells Saul that you're king over the people of Israel. Listen to my words. Go and strike down Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Cut them off. They are wicked. They are irredeemable. What do you think Saul does? Oh, wait a second. There's a king. He's got riches. He's got cattle. Go down to verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised was worthless and they devoted to destruction. Now this unfolds. He thinks he can kind of get away with it. This is where Saul's picking and choosing what he wants to do or, or what he thinks he should do. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 11. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And here's what the man of God does. Samuel's angry, and he cries out to the Lord all night long. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Look what I've done. He wants to show the nations. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, the arrogance of Saul. After he only does half of what the Lord commands, sets up an altar to himself, he says to to Samuel, blessed be you to the Lord. Notice his statements. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. You know, like when you give a kid a, a chore to do, and he does one fraction of cleaning the corner of the table, and he's so proud of himself, and the rest of it's a mess. Samuel, he's like, um, what then is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Uh, isn't there oxen over there that you didn't have yesterday? Saul then said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to to sacrifice to the Lord. See, we were going to give it to you, Lord. Give me more, and then I'll give you more. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Saul said, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Now, look where the Lord leans in. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, as every good, self-righteous, self-serving king would defend himself, Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone out on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And so Samuel gets right to Saul's heart here. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than a sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the same as the sin of divination, going after false gods, calling upon false gods, and presumption, presuming what the Lord would, would want. Putting words in the Lord's mouth is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. It's just because I feared the people and obeyed them. It's still their fault. Jumping down to verse 26. You rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord is rejecting you from being king. He reaches out to Samuel, pulls his jacket, and the Lord, and he uses that as an illustration to say the Lord has tor- torn the kingdom of Israel from you. In verse 30, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders and the people and return with me. After all that, all he wants to do is save face. After all that, he wants to stand with his head held high in front of the people, come back with me, Samuel, so they don't think bad of me. He's still fearing the people. And Samuel goes. But then Samuel does what he's supposed to do. He takes King Agag and he cuts him to pieces before the Lord. And he never saw him again, but he grieved over Saul the rest of his life. That's Saul's legacy. That's the end of chapter 15. If you set up a king in God's place, he will soon be replaced. Don't get misled by the language of God having regret. He just uses terms that we can understand. God is sovereign. He knew what, what, what Saul would do. But Saul, but God grieves over his wicked heart. God cannot allow this rebellious king to stand. But he would ultimately be rejected and replaced with the man after God's own heart. Next week we're going to slow down uh, and spend some time with David. But we know that this points us to the ultimate and final king. And so remember, when Saul took the best portion for himself, our king took the worst portion for himself. He took our sins. When Saul failed to destroy his enemies, Our Savior has completely destroyed all of our sins, past, present, and future. Our Savior did not blame us even though it was our fault. He didn't even blame those who crucified him, even though they had every right. But he obeyed his Father's commands, and so his kingdom will never be rejected. Because he came willingly and with no regrets. Remember verse 22 and 23. It is not your religious observance that saves you. You can't save yourself by being religious. You can't save yourself by doing good deeds and thinking you're offering things to the Lord. That sounds godly. It is almost right. It is adjacent. But you could not be further from the truth. There is only one sacrifice that is worthy. And even when you are saved, How many of you are trying to prove your assurance by your own religious acts, by your own religious faithfulness? You can only obey him if you have a new heart. And if you have a new heart, do it lovingly and joyfully. So here's our final application. Um, I want us to meditate on 1224 as we get ready to come before the table. 
We don't put our hope and trust in, in leaders. We don't judge by superficial external things. This sounds like the end of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? When all is said and done, all the books have been written, what is left? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is what Samuel says. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't give you anything better to leave with. Remember that the Lord looks upon the heart. Meditate on this. Fear the Lord. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is to be feared, but he is gentle and he is kind and he is loving toward his people. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Brothers and sisters, as we, you can approach this table for the same reason you can approach the throne of grace. Because of what he has done for you. You can serve him and obey him because Christ first obeyed his father and was obedient on our behalf. You come to this table because he has given you a new heart. He has put his spirit within you. The sign and seal that you are pleasing to God forever. Because the spirit dwells in you. And so if you are in Christ, this is a table of comfort and joy and remembrance. This table is a sign of feasting on the sacrifice of our king. And a glimpse of the feasting that we will have with him in glory. So I'm going to give you a few minutes as the deacons take their spots uh, to prepare your hearts to approach the table.